Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. The words of our Lord to the church in Philadelphia. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bless your Word and that you would now open a door for the Word. For Christ's sake. Amen. You may be seated. By way of introduction, I want to ask a few questions. And I want you to consider these questions. I don't think that they're difficult, but they're things that we ought to consider regularly. The first question is this What is the job of a church? What is our purpose? We might say that the, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, but we'll do that in eternity. What's the, what is the purpose of the church on the earth right now? We find, we've found ourselves in a strange circumstance where you're all sitting there looking at me and we've opened this ancient book and we've read and then we sang what we read. We learned about what we read and then we sang what we read and then we... We read some more and then we sang some more and now we're going to read some more and we're going to learn about what we're reading. Why do we do this? I think the answer is stated probably the most succinctly in Paul's letter to Timothy when he refers, he makes mention of the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. That's our job. That's why the church exists on the earth. Now, there are a lot of things that are going to be accomplished as we do that one job. As we uphold and support the truth, the lost will be evangelized and, and lost people will, will be saved and be gathered into the, the ranks of the church. The saints of God will be edified and sanctified and strengthened. And God will be glorified through that means because we're doing the thing that He has commanded us to do. So we, there are a lot of things that we would say the church is, exists for all of these many things, but ultimately it is as we are a pillar and buttress of the truth on the earth that those things are fulfilled. And this is illustrated through the use of a lampstand to describe the churches of Asia Minor and every church in every age. It's the church's job to hold up the light of the gospel. And the church holds out in times of affliction and tribulation, always bearing up the light. And it is our job to hold fast in that task until the very end. And then our job is complete. 
So the purpose of a church is to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. Second question, what is a church? What is a church? To put it, again, maybe more simply than it ought to be, it's an assembly of the saints. Now we could come into that and say it's an assembly of saints covenanted together to sit under the word and sacrament. But according to the definition of the word, it's a gathering of the saints. And when we take that into consideration, we have to remember that you, individual Christian, are not the church. And I, up here on this stage alone, I'm not the church. We are, as a gathering, as a body, we are the church. So it's the job of the church to hold up the light of the gospel. You're not the church and I'm not the church. We're the church. So it's our job to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. No one single person can bear up the whole task of the church by themselves. And there's not one single person who exists in the church who doesn't have a role to play in bearing up the light of the gospel. So how are we doing as a church? How are we doing? And to be more specific, how are you doing? It would be very easy to say, well, the men who preach, preach the truth. Well, the men who preach are not the church. Everybody has a role to play in the job of the church in being a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, what if, here's the third question, what if we were all doing exactly what we were supposed to be doing as a congregation? Would we then, with all of our collaborated efforts, finally be able to fulfill the duty that's been given to us by our Lord? The answer is no. Because there's one more ingredient to a healthy and faithful church, and that's the Lord Jesus. He, he is the final ingredient. The Lord Jesus Himself, who by the power of the Spirit, fuels the flame of the witness of the church and causes it to be effective. We can't bear up under the weight of the task without Him, even if we all got together and put our shoulder to the burden. We could not fulfill the task on our own <clears throat> without Him. He is absolutely capable of bearing the full weight of the task of the church all His own, and yet He has chosen in His infinite and sovereign wisdom to use His church, to use His people to advance His kingdom through the preaching of the gospel, to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now listen to how this Lord Jesus describes Himself. The angel of the, to, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of, and here he is, the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Every church in every place in every generation needs to know this about its Lord. We must understand this about our Lord. First, notice He is the Holy One, the True One. Or if we wanted to render it absolutely literally, the Holy, the True. Period. Now we see this same language in chapter 6, verse 10. They cried out with a loud voice, O Sovereign Lord, Holy and True. So who's holy and true? It's the Sovereign Lord. It's God Himself who is the Holy One, the True One. And so when Christ takes that title onto Himself, we know that He's speaking directly of His divine nature. He is the Holy. He is the True. Notice that He is the Holy One. Not a Holy One. The Holy One. There's none holy like Jesus Christ. We are commanded in Scripture to be holy, but that's with this qualifier, as the Lord your God is holy. In other words, any holiness that we might attain to in this life will always be a derivative holiness. We are just attempting to be like Him. He's not like us. He has a holiness all of His own. We, we know that holy means cut apart or separate. Not only is Jesus Christ holy, but His holiness is a holy holiness. It's not like our holiness. It's all in its own category. A holiness completely separate from anything that we could ever attain to. Last week we, we, we looked at the, the text that says, God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. That is a, a manifestation of His holiness. It's not that He just thinks about things differently or He has varying opinions. No, the way that He goes about thinking 
Nothing like the way we think. The way that He does things, His ways, nothing like ours. Nothing like anything in all of creation. This is Jesus Christ who is the Holy One. This title is used for Christ throughout the Old Testament. In Hosea chapter 11, verse 9, listen to these words. I am God and not a man. The Holy One in your midst. Now here we have a little piece of the very definition of holiness. I'm God, not a man. I'm not like you. I'm in your midst. I can be in your midst, but I'll never be like you even when I'm in the midst of you. (coughs) He's the Holy One. Now what's amazing is this same God took to Himself the nature of a man so that He became just as much man as if He were not God, and yet He remains just as much God, the Holy One in our midst, as if He were not man. This, this same title, Isaiah uses it a lot. This might be his, his favorite title. Isaiah 47.4 Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is His name, is the Holy One of Israel. Now if I were to ask you as a Christian, Christian, who is your Redeemer? Well, you would say, Jesus Christ is my Redeemer. He's bought me. He's my kinsman Redeemer, my my elder brother. He's ransomed me from slavery. He's my Redeemer. You're right. If I were to ask you, who's the Lord of hosts? Who's the commander of the armies of the Lord? The King of kings and Lord of lords? You would say, Jesus Christ. Exactly. Jesus Christ is the Holy One. He's the one that Isaiah spoke of. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like Him? says the Holy One. Again, the very definition of the Holy One. You can't compare me. I'm incomparable. There's no one like Jesus Christ. We can't even begin to make comparisons as to what He might be like. We can't even begin to conjure up an image as to what He might be like. We can't even begin to draw a picture of Jesus Christ because He's the Holy One. You can't draw a picture of something you can't even conceive. Isaiah 43, 15, I am the Lord, your Holy One. Your Holy One. The Holy Lord Jesus signs Himself over to His people and He says, I'll be your Holy One. So He's the Redeemer who is ours. He's the incomparable Lord of hosts who is ours. He's God and not man. And yet the man of God's right hand given over to us, your Redeemer, your Holy One. The demons themselves even recognize this about Jesus in Mark 1.24. This is a fascinating sentence. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demons in a synagogue, probably filled with people, Jewish people all sitting around, Jewish men, Jewish women, dressed the same. They looked at Jesus of Nazareth and they recognized the absolute otherness of this one. I know who you are. You're the Holy One. How often do you consider His holiness? And I'm not just talking about His sinlessness. Yes, He is holy, blameless, and undefiled, and separate from sinners. Yes, when He was reviled, He did not revile in return. There was no sin in Him. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the fact that Jesus Christ is like none other. He's completely other than. He's not like His creation, because all of His creation is derived from Him. Any likeness that He might share with us, it's not because He's like us. It's because we were made in His image. We're like Him. Any beauty that we might see in creation, it's not because, well, He's kind of like the creation, therefore He's lovely. No, no, no. no. All of creation has a derivative beauty that comes from His hand. Any wisdom that we might hear come out of the mouth of a man, it's not because, well, well and Jesus was kind of like that. No, no, no. That man is, has derived some wisdom from the Holy One. He can't be like any creature because He precedes all of His creation. The creation might bear some testimony to Him, but He's not like the creature. Though He is man, and this is astonishing, (coughs) though He is a man, He's not limited in ignorance like a man. 
He's not limited by time like a man. He's not limited by location like a man. We say, how can that be? He, he took on flesh and blood. Right, and at the very same time, He is the Holy One of God. He is just as much God as if He were not man. He is the God of heaven and earth. From everlasting to everlasting, Jesus Christ is God. Our Lord Jesus Christ is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Jesus Christ sets up kingdoms and Jesus Christ tears down kingdoms. Jesus Christ gives and Jesus Christ takes away. Blessed be the name of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. He is the Holy One. He's also the true one. Or again, the true. Now this could possibly have reference to to truth versus a lie. In verse 9, there are those ethnic Jews who are lying. And it's always a comfort to know that when people around you are lying, there's one who will never lie. You never have to worry if he's lying. He can't tell a lie. In Revelation 19.9, this same word is used of the words of God. These are the true words of God. Revelation 21.5, these words are trustworthy and true. Revelation 22.6, these words are trustworthy and true. So it could be a reference, but I think there's more to this here because again, Christ is describing Himself as to His divine nature. He is the true. We'll see it in in verse 14. He's the faithful and true witness. (coughs) Revelation 19.11, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful. And true. It's interesting. It it doesn't say the one sitting on it is, as in he's just being described as he's kind of faithful and he's kind of true. No, he's called that. Those are titles. Faithful. True. So the word true goes beyond simply just truth versus a lie. In Revelation 15.3, the ways of God are true, it says. O Lord God the Almighty, just and true are your ways. In Revelation 16, 7, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And in chapter 19, verse 2, His judgments are true and just. In this sense, the word true conveys genuineness. Jesus Christ is the genuine. He's the real deal. He's not a fake. He's not a phony. Many false Christs will come. This one, speaking to the churches, is the real one. He's actual. He's not a phantom. He's not a figment of our imagination. He's not something that we conjured up to just get us through the day, but when we lay down at night, we realize it's not really real. No, that's not Him. He's the genuine, the true. It could also mean exact or accurate. And in this sense, Christ is perfectly consistent in Himself, to Himself as God. He's in no way as to His person or personality off-kilter, imbalanced, unsteady. True could also mean loyal or faithful. In this sense, Jesus Christ cannot betray His people. He can never be anything other than absolutely trustworthy. <coughs> the same word is used throughout John's Gospel. John 1.9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Remember, John the Baptist was a burning and shining light. But Jesus Christ is the true light, the actual light, the light that John's light was just getting ready for. John's light might as well have been darkness compared to the true light who is Christ. John 6.32, Jesus says, My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Now, manna was bread, literally bread from heaven. It was sustenance from God Himself. But Jesus says, I'm the real sustenance. I'm the genuine sustenance. The manna, as miraculous as it was, it was just pointing to me. I'm the real thing. The eternal sustenance of the soul. John 15, 1, he said, I'm the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Now, in the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as a vine. Jesus says, yeah, they were called a vine. I'm the true vine. I'm the real thing. I'm that which Israel pointed to. And we can, again, see this as a reference to His divine nature. The very same thing is attributed to God the Father. John 7, 28, He who sent me is true. And John 17, 3, Jesus prayed, And this is eternal life, that they know you, and get this, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The only true God. There's only one true. Jesus says, they need to know the true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. And then He says, I'm the true. I'm that one. 
He is the real God, the true God, the true to the divine essence because He is the image of the invisible God, the exact representation of His Father's nature. So when we read the Holy One and the True One, we're, we're seeing, again, and this is amazing in the Revelation, another reference to the divinity of Christ. Revelation is, is probably has the fullest Trinitarian theology of any book in Scripture. Jesus Christ bears all of the essential attributes of God, and here we're being pointed to His transcendent holiness and absolute veracity as God. He's holy, so He's completely unlike His creatures, and yet He's true, absolutely like Himself in every way. His thoughts, His ways, His plans, His actions, His perspective, His opinions, His methods, His person are as far from creatures as the heaven is from the earth. And yet at the same time, He is eternal, immutable God, never acting out of character, never reckless, never rash, never impulsive. That's who Jesus Christ is. The reason that we might be startled when we see Him chasing the money changers out of the temple, it's not because He was acting out of character, it's because we don't know God. The reason that we might be startled that He would take a child onto His knee or that parents would bring their children to Him, it's not because He's all of a sudden acting out of character. It's because we don't know God. That's who God is. He's showing us God. He's absolutely true to character as God Himself. So He's the Holy One. He's the True One. Now notice, because of who He is, it says, who has the key of David. Again, there's another definite article which is... The way this would read would be hard for us, but it's the holy, the true, the one having the key. And then there's one more, the one opening, and no one will shut, shutting and no one opens. The one having the key. Remember back in chapter 1 verse 13, we saw that he has a golden sash around his chest. And we trace that back to Isaiah 22 where Eliakim is replacing Shebna as head over the household. <coughs> In that text, verse 22 of Isaiah 22, says, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. In that passage, Eliakim is a type of Christ. He's foreshadowing Christ. And there's a twofold image. Now get this. Twofold image. First, he's the head of the house. He's given the key of the house. That means he has authority. He has the, the power to welcome in or to shut out. He can open it for whom he wills and he can shut out whom he wills. We know that Christ is head over the house of God, Hebrews 3, 5 and 6. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, but Christ is faithful over all God's house as a son. The house of God, as we read in Paul's letter to Timothy is the church of the living God. And if we trace that text in Hebrews out, and we are God's house if we hold fast our confession firm to the end. So there's the head of the house, but notice it's the key of David who was the king long before that prophecy, the language of Isaiah. So this is not just any house. This is not just some house on the street. This is the king's house, the royal house. And that... Isaiah 22 text, he says, I will place on his shoulder. There you have the language of appointment. I will appoint him. I will place it on his shoulder. The place of strength, of bearing a load. The government shall be on his shoulder. The key, the authority to open and close the royal house. Now we, we know that Christ is omnipotent Lord over every nation, over every kingdom. But this particular authority is a reference to His mediatorial lordship that's exercised specifically over God's house. The church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So now we've sort of transitioned. It's no longer just His divine nature, but we're now discussing His mediatorial reign as the God-man, the Son of David, who opens and none will shut, who shuts and no one opens. This is how He exercises His Authority. He opens up the house. He closes the house as He wishes. He's got the key. He's the only one with a key. Now, I don't know about you, and here I'm, I'm venturing away from the majority of the commentators, but when I read of Christ having a key and exercising rule over His house, allowing entrance and refusing entrance, two texts come to my mind, Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, Matthew 18, 
where it says, Christ says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Matthew 18, 18, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Remember, the context is the local church. That's church discipline that he's describing there. And the language, remember, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound. It is literally shall have been bound. Whatever the church exercises with regard to church discipline, it's already carrying out the heavenly sentence. Heaven has already made a decision and the church wields the keys. So the keys of the kingdom have been given to the church by Christ to bind and to loose, to open and to close according to the edict of heaven. In other words, in this sense, Christ wields the key through His body, the church. Now how is it that a local church on a consistent and regular basis wields the keys of the kingdom, binding and loosing, opening and closing? The answer is through the preaching of the Word of God. Every time a church, every time the gospel goes forward, forth, Christ Himself is flinging the doors open and He's just standing out of the way. As the gospel goes forth, He's, he's opening the way into His kingdom and He does this through His church. Now, I think the rest of the letter sort of bears out that interpretation. Look at verse 8. I know your works... Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now notice the irony here. I know your works. Behold, I have set. Well, whose works are they? Are they the church's works? Are, they, is this, are we talking about something Christ has done? The answer is yes. Their commendable works are directly associated with Christ's having opened a door. Now what is the door? Again, we hear this language all the time in our, in our day. I just feel like the Lord's opening a door for me. And what we typically mean is that God has opened a door that just happens to satisfy my flesh and my lust. I could do this and I kind of want to do this and nobody's stopping me from doing this. There's no piano falling out of the sky. I'm assuming God's opened the door. That's what we typically mean. But that's not what the Bible means. 2 Corinthians 2.12, Paul says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. You were pulling our hair out. Paul, an open door. You didn't walk through the door. But his spirit couldn't find rest. But, but notice there, that's beside the point. Notice the door there was a providential occasion for preaching the gospel. That's a door. 1 Corinthians 16, 9, But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of effective ministry has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Again, the door is for effective gospel ministry. Contrary to the way that we typically use that, notice this was not an easy door. There were many adversaries. It was not pleasing to his flesh. It wasn't that he, he thought, hey, this, this is a, an open highway. The Lord must have opened a door. No, he looked and said, it's going to be really hard, but they're going to let me preach. That was his door. Effective gospel ministry. Colossians 4.3, we find out where these doors come from. He says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ. What's the door? It's an opportunity to preach, to declare the mystery of Christ. And who opens the doors? God opens the doors. What's the job of the church? Be a pillar and buttress of the truth. How is the way of effective ministry opened up for a church? As Christ makes the way, opens the door, a providential opening to preach the Word. So that's why it makes sense for Him to say, I know your works, I've opened for you a door. He had opened for them a door of effective ministry. They had walked through that door. That was their work. They were doing the job of a church. Now notice after he inserts that little reference to his own providential working, I've opened a door, he turns back to them and says, I know you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. What was their works? They kept his word. They had not denied his name. 
Through Christ working for them and in them, they had faithfully stood as a pillar and buttress of the truth. He says, I know you have but little power. So they, in themselves, were not a powerful people. They didn't have a lot of clout. They didn't have a great reputation in their city like others. That's so that whatever happens cannot be attributed to them. Nobody will be able to say, well, I mean, of course people are flocking to that church. I mean, so-and-so goes there. I mean, they had their name here or there. No, no, no. They don't have power. This is very much the language of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when Paul says, Consider your calling, brothers. Just stop and think about it. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Paul himself said, if I must boast... I'm going to boast of the things that show my weakness. I'm going to brag about how pitiful I am. Now why has Christ chosen this means? 2 Corinthians 12 again. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. You have but little power. Perfect. I'll show my power. My power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Why has Christ chosen to use a church of little power? So that when the effective door is opened and they walk through that door and they are faithful to what God's called them to do, they'll have to be able to say, He did it. He opened the door. All we did was walk through it. He really just sort of carried us through it. We're His bride. He's the bridegroom. He picked us up and carried us over the threshold. And here we are reaping the fruits of His providential working. It's all Christ. We do what we do because Christ is who He is. And we can trust that when we are obedient, He will bless. That's comforting to a suffering church. I want to know Jesus is holy. When I get up here, I want to know He's not encumbered by my circumstances. It's not, he's not affected. He's separate. He's holy. But I also want to know that He's true. That He will always do right by His people. He will always stand by His Word. He will stand by those who are faithful to the Word. I need to know that. Every week I need to know that. As the psalmist prays in Psalm 125, 4, Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. Now I can't pray that if I'm not upright in heart. If I'm not being faithful, then I can't expect and call out for Him to be faithful back to me. But when we are obedient, we can trust that Christ will preserve us. And when we're not obedient, when we're disobedient, we've got no comfort. When we're being disobedient. But this church was being faithful. Christ walks the path of holiness and obedience. And as long as we're walking that path, He walks with us. As soon as we veer off of that path, we're on our own. What you can see here is that the church in Philadelphia is doing positively and being commended for what Sardis was not doing. So we we got to see last week a negative picture. Don't compromise the gospel. And here we're seeing they were just preaching the gospel. They were being faithful to what they were called to do. He says, you've kept my word and have not denied my name. They had the same pressures as these other towns and yet they had simply remained faithful. Now he gives us a little bit of a clue as to what their trouble was in verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Again, this is nothing strange if you've read the New Testament. You know, it was was a constant battle between the church and the ethnic Jews, the Judaizers as we call them causing trouble for the Christians. Christ here calls unbelieving Jews a synagogue of Satan because he believed what Paul believed, that a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is of the heart by the Spirit. That those who are Christ's are the offspring of Abraham. It has nothing to do with ethnicity. And if you're going to come against Christ's church, you're working for his enemy, the devil. And he will, as we're going to see in in the rest of the book, he's going to handle that. 
He's saying to them, they're, they're not the real deal. It's the same as in Galatians. They're not the real deal. You're the real deal. How can that be? Because you're in union with the true. You've got the true vine, the true bread, the true light. And more than likely what was happening is these Jews, uh, for a long time the Roman government probably viewed the church like they were all Jews. They, they couldn't tell much of a difference. They're meeting in the synagogues. They're doing a lot of the same stuff. They look like the same. Uh, many of them are coming from the same group. And the Jews recognized this and began to publicly distance themselves from the Christians to let Rome know, hey, these people, we're not them. We're not like them. Those guys are divisive. They are, they're a cult. Uh, we don't mind offering some incense to Caesar. That don't bother us, but they won't. You better watch them. And so the Jews would begin to distance themselves publicly from the Christians and say, we're the real deal, they're not, and that would bring in persecution from the government as well. But these saints in Philadelphia kept the word of Christ. They would not deny His name. And so He gives this promise. I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now there are three texts in Isaiah that help us understand this, what's happening here. Isaiah 45, 14. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you saying, Surely God is in you. And there is no other, <clears throat> no God besides Him. Gentile persecutors coming over to join, here's the, the promise, coming over to join the, the Israelites. Isaiah 49, 22 and 23, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples. There's a lot of theology behind that phrase. I will raise my signal to the peoples. They shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Again, Gentile persecutors gathered into the people of God. And one last one. Isaiah 60, 14. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. And all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Again, those who afflicted the people of God are going to come and confess, you're the true people of God. You've got the real thing. You're the real Zion. Now God had promised, this is amazing, in, in Isaiah, God had promised that Gentiles who once persecuted the Jews would come and join them. In Revelation 3.9, it's the opposite. Ethnic Jewish persecutors are promised to come and join the Christian church. We say, which is it? Again, both. This is the fulfillment of what Isaiah was speaking of. God's true people have always been a spiritual people. And God's spiritual promises have always found their fulfillment in a spiritual people united to Christ. All the promises of God, those three texts in Isaiah, find their yes and amen in Him. So whether it's Jews or Gentiles, it doesn't matter. The point is God's always had a people from every tribe and every nation. And through the consistent and persistent preaching of the gospel, even those who are at one time persecutors will come and they're going to say, I used to persecute you, but i got to admit, you got the real thing. And they will come and they will worship with us. The Apostle Paul is a great example. Once a persecutor and then a worshiper. When Christ opens the door and His people are obedient and faithful, He'll give the increase even in a way that absolutely confounds our mind. Even, even with those that we think, we know them. And we talk to them and we believe deep down it's not possible for this person to be converted. These people are too lost. They're too far gone. It couldn't happen. God says, try me. He opens the door. When He opens the door, they can't shut it in your face. Revelation 3.10 
Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to dry those who dwell on the earth. Because they had proven faithful, they could trust Him to be faithful in return. Now this is a, probably an important text. What, what is the hour of trial? How do, how do we... We do what we always do. We take the things that we know for absolute certain... And then we let those determine what might, what might be. If you read the Revelation, it's not that difficult. But what might be a difficult text? First, we know that he's talking to the saints in Philadelphia. So whatever he's talking about, this hour of trial, it has to be relevant to them. It's not something that's still to come after 2,000 years. Next, notice he says it's going to come upon the whole world. That's at least a reference to the known world, like in 2.1, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed, referring to the Roman world. It could just be the, the, the known world. It's at least that broad. Thirdly, the focus of this hour of trial is to try those who dwell on the earth. It's a testing specifically for those who dwell on the earth. A common descriptor in the book of the Revelation. Chapter 6, verse 10, How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Chapter 8, verse 13, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. Chapter 11, verse 10, Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them. That is the two prophets that they had just killed. Chapter 13, verse 8, All who dwell on the earth will worship the beast. Chapter 13, verse 14, Another beast will deceive those who dwell on the earth. In chapter 17, verse 8, the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life. Those who dwell on the earth in the Revelation have the blood of the saints on their hands. They are cursed by God. They rejoice over the persecuted saints. They worship the beast, are deceived by the beast, and their names are not written in the book of life. This is an hour of trial coming on those who dwell on the earth. And fourthly, This reference has to be applicable to all churches in all times and all places. Not just Philadelphia, but for anybody who has an ear to hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now this is another major theme in the Revelation. It's this, the tribulation which characterizes the present church age will be ongoing. It will bring great affliction upon those who oppose God and it will serve to strengthen and purify the church. And we could go back to the... the, the first portion of Matthew chapter 24. You're going to see all of these things happening. And he's going to say, the end is not yet. These are but the beginning of birth pains. The one who is faithful to the end will be saved. It's the same thing that's happening here. Christ says, I'll keep you from that hour of trial. The very same language that He prayed in John 17, 15, when He said, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. When he says, I'll keep you from that hour of trial, he's not saying, I'm going to rapture you out as it all happens and then come back. No, he's saying, I'll keep you through it. I'll preserve you through it. No true church is ever going to escape some sort of affliction, some sort of tribulation. And no true saint of God will ever be snatched out of Christ's hand. Whatever comes upon the earth... It will try those who dwell on the earth and we'll see it over and over and over. They would not repent. They would not repent. They would not repent. It's coming and it's coming and it serves to strengthen and purify the church. We're going to be in it. But it it cannot pull us away from Christ. He'll keep us from that hour of trial. You can almost imagine a little P.S. at the end of this epistle. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. P.S. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He says, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. He'll keep them and they must hold fast. He exhorts them to endurance. Stay comforted, fully convinced that I'll keep you and also remain faithful and work as if someone could actually come and snatch your reward. Again, he doesn't say that you can lose that crown in a sense. He's saying you you work 
so that it doesn't happen as if it were coming upon you. And He gives them this promise. To one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I'll write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. A pillar, you know, is a permanent fixture in the temple. You can't take the pillars out. they got to stay. An integral part of the structure of the new Jerusalem. And he explains what that means when he says, Never shall he go out of it, immutably sealed and fixed in the eternal kingdom of God. Now we've seen this picture before of the writing of the name, the sealing on the forehead, a stamp of ownership belonging to God. The name of my God, the name of the city of my God. Ezekiel 48.35 says, The name of the city from that time on shall be, The Lord is there. So to those who are faithful, we have this hope. It's the application of the greatest promise in Scripture. I'll be their God and they shall be my people. But here, it's made over personally and individually. It's not just they, it's you. Same thing that we'll read in Revelation 21.7. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. It's not merely collective. It's not merely corporate. It's personal. It's intimate. You will not be lost in the innumerable host. You're not going to get lost in the crowd. You. God says, I'm going to write my name on you. You're faithful to the end, faithful unto death. For that one, He says, I will forever, immutably, consummately hand myself over to you as your Holy One and I will seal you as my Son forever. You'll never go out. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So does that promise sound rewarding? To be a permanent fixture in the eternal temple of God. Do you see and feel the need for faithfulness to the mission? It's very easy to say, let's not be like Sardis. Don't be like Sardis. Well, you've got to be like Philadelphia. You have to have the positive. Here's what you are to do. Four things very quickly. I think we need to at least do these five things, rather, five things. First, we need to pray for open doors, specifically for the ministry of this church. Pray that the Spirit would give inward freedom and unction to those who preach. Pray that the Spirit would accompany the preaching of the Word with His presence and His power. Pray that the Spirit would make effectual the Word unto salvation and sanctification. All of that is a part of opening the door, an effective ministry. That's what we want. We don't want to get together here preaching and it not be effective. And it be useless. Pray for open doors. Secondly, pray for sensitivity to open doors. And here I'm thinking individually. You need to be sensitive to that. Pray that Christ would open a door for you to fulfill your role in the church as a pillar and buttress of the truth, to fulfill your role in advancing the gospel and the kingdom, and then you have to be sensitive. We can't be so, so entangled mentally all the time that, we're not, that we just lose opportunities because we're engulfed in our own things. You must be sensitive. Go out into the world remembering, I'm a member of the church. The church has one job. Pillar and buttress of the truth. Everything that I'm doing needs to somehow fit into that that work, that calling. So pray for sensitivity. Thirdly, then pray for strength and wisdom to walk through those open doors. We've all been there, right? You pray, there's an opportunity. It's silence, 30 seconds of silence with another person, and you're thinking, like, yep, this is a door. This is a door. I think I saw it closed. Nope, still open. It's just quiet. It'd be a perfect time. I could, it would be a perfect time. And you take me, and you could literally rehearse the entire gospel in your mind while you're waiting. Like, Make sure I got it. Make sure I got it. Oh, okay, see ya. Well, you've got to be ready. You've got to pray for the strength and the wisdom. Like I said last week, when Christ opens the door, you use it. Walk through it. In His strength and in His wisdom, 
Four, rest in Christ's wisdom, remembering that He'll use who He wills. He's chosen to use His people. You say, well, I'm not wise and I'm not powerful and I'm not of noble birth. And He says, you just signed yourself up. Come on in. That's who I'm looking for. Be faithful and obedient. That's what He uses. Faithfulness and obedience. Again, if He opens a door, you're safe to walk through it. It's not going to slam shut on your foot. Just walk through it. Nobody can shut that door. He has the key. Just be faithful. You have to be faithful. And rest in that wisdom. And then lastly, trust in Christ's means. As we saw last week, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. We have to be ready. We have to be sheathed with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We have to have our feet shod with the preparation of the Gospel. I'm ready. I know it. I'm rehearsed. I'm assuming this is my job. I've prayed for open doors. I'm sensitive. I'm looking for them. I've got strength. I'm praying for strength. And trust that the Gospel is the power of God and the salvation. Trust it. This is... Talking about faith from the confession is very easy. Walking by faith in this world is, is the hard part. It's good, to, it's good to have good definitions and to know what it means to have saving faith. To live by faith in the most basic things. Believe in the Word of God. Believing that it says what it says. Little things. If it, that's the difficult part. We have to trust. We have to walk and believe that He uses it. You say, what if they don't get saved? That, that, I don't have a point six. Got five points. Trust in Christ means. That's it. There's no step six as to what to do if they don't get saved. You just be faithful. Walk through the doors. But it's amazing how Christ, and there is a lot of a lot to be made about the fact that he says, they'll learn that I have loved you. And this is the only church that he he uses that language with. But again, this is for all churches in all ages who are faithful to his word. When he opens the door, be faithful and be obedient, and even even more blessed than knowing he'll bless that he will he will accompany his word. More blessed than that is to know he's loved us. He's loved us. He's not going to say, "Well, you didn't you, you you shared the gospel and they didn't get saved." I'm struggling to love you right now. No, he loves his people, and his people will be faithful. So let's pray.